Ho, hello, and welcome to a festive-tinged episode of OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews, and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward, and coming up on this month's pod, a tidal wave of criticism, gallantry revisited, and a cuddly Giuseppe Verdi. All this, and an exclusive interview with Glyndebourne's managing director, Sarah Hopwood. I'll also be asking my guests for their highlights of 2019, what they're looking forward to in 2020, and we'll pick out the finest gifts for opera lovers this Christmas. I'm joined this month in the Chapel FM studio by the conductor Chris Pelly. Good morning, Chris. Ho, ho, hello to you, David. Thank you very much. Joining in with the festive cheer, the festive atmosphere. Uh, and on the line, making his pod debut, it's the composer Michael Betridge. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning. Uh, and you were saying in the intro that uh, you're a little bit of a Grinch at this time of year. Yes, I can be. I think it's years of working with choirs and starting kind of Christmas repertoire in October means by the time you get to December that you are sick of all the traditional carols. Luckily this year, I'm um, not working with as many choirs, so I'm a little less Grinch-like, a little less Scrooge-like this year. Good. That's what I like to hear. Um, we're going to kick off uh, with one of my favourite stories, not just of the month, but of the whole year. Um, within the space of our last pod being recording and today, Kanye West announced his first ever opera and it was performed at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. Um, one of the many things I love about this is this is kind of harking back to you know, the, the 1700s. You just kind of decide you're going to do an opera. You quickly get it out there, perform it. Bish bosh bosh, all done. So I like the I like the speed that this was all um, put together. Um, you can watch the performance. It was streamed online. You can get a trial uh, for the uh, Tidal streaming app. And you can watch the opera. It's only 15 minutes long. It's called Nebuchadnezzar, um, based on the biblical story. Um, now. There's been quite a lot of, it's fair to say, uh, criticism of the piece from both classical and non-classical publications. Uh, Rolling Stone called it muddled and off the cuff. The Guardian, a giant folly. The New York Times wasn't really an opera, wasn't really any good. The New York Post allowed flop. Now, I have watched uh, the, the opera on Tidal. Um, I would encourage you to do so. It certainly has its issues, but um, I really, really loved the music in this piece. He uses uh, kind of a chorus. It's really an oratorio uh, rather than kind of an opera. It's not very dramatic. Um, but he uses a chorus, kind of gospel-influenced uh, chorus at the back of the stage. And there's some fantastic principles in the production. It was very uh, powerfully staged for whatever dramatic action there kind of might have been. And I just love the idea that... Um, I don't know a lot about Kanye West. I don't know why he'd want to do an opera, but I love the idea that he's gone, look, here's something I'm really passionate about. I'm going to put it on the Hollywood Bowl and kind of give it, give it a, give it a shot. Um, Chris, at the time, you said you were uh, intrigued uh, by by this. Yeah. Um, what was it about it that that piqued your interest? Well, kind of similar to you, sort of the just the ambition of 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 him saying, "Yeah, I'm I'm going to do an opera," and you know, I kind of wondered, does he have any any kind of background knowledge about? opera or, or kind of interest in opera or did he just think you know well that's a that's a thing that exists I'll say I'm doing that next and and I'll do whatever I want to do and I'll make that into an opera which kind of I feel like that's more what he did in the end and like you say there was a sort of a gospel-y element a sort of gospel oratorio-y element to it but yeah it didn't didn't really feel like an opera um, I haven't watched the whole thing. Um, I've only seen clips, in fairness. So maybe if I watched the whole thing, I would I would say, oh, yes, definitely an opera. Uh, but certainly the critics didn't say that. I was just I was just intrigued. He's a very intriguing 
man, really. I think the New York Times said it wasn't really an opera, um, but that Kanye West himself is operatic, <laughs> is the word that they used. It's interesting, yeah. <laughs> in in his kind of, yeah, larger-than-life persona, I guess. I, I What I was particularly interested in reading about was all the, all the reviews seemed to say it was just really under-rehearsed and under-prepared, and people didn't seem to know what they were doing. Apparently, the... It was two hours late starting, and you could see stagehands building the set at that time. And, you know, you would expect a slightly slicker production from somebody of that kind of calibre. And it makes me wonder if he was, you know, maybe his ambition got the better of him. And and he thought, oh, yeah, I'll do an opera. How hard can it be? And then, I don't know, maybe realised... It's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, there were some great moments in the stream where you could see sort of people in the wings sort of gesticulating wildly as to what was supposed to happen next and people on stage sort of mouthing things at each other as they were bringing thing, things on and whatnot. Um, I mean, Michael, again, one of the reasons why I really love this is that, again, it's, it's kind of putting an opera on stage, but it's saying that, uh, you know, kind of contemporary opera doesn't necessarily have to mean this sort of... Um, I don't know what people think about with contemporary opera, you know, that it might be unmelodic, it might be kind of... Um, atonal or very difficult to listen to i mean as as a composer of operas yourself i mean what what do you kind of think of if someone says you know write, write me an opera what <laughs> i mean kind of what what do you what does come to mind for you as a composer for sort of what opera kind of means today i think for me it's the big thing that when as a composer you're writing instrumental work you generally have a more i guess it's more singular because it comes out of your head and there may be inspiration from elsewhere but Opera is all about kind of teamwork and collaboration and just watching the few clips. Again, I haven't seen the whole thing and I will try and catch it because I'm very intrigued now. Um, but watching the clips, it kind of reminded me, especially staging wise, of kind of um, uh, Philip Glass opera. Yes, uh, and the, the Glass chorus piece. is very glassy. It's very repetitive. Uh, and I think for me, that kind of that actually drew me in more than the music to begin with. And again, the kind of gospel singing. Yes, it's not quite Philip Glass, but the kind of use of voices made me think of Philip Glass as well. I noticed a lot of the criticism from Twitter. There's a great thread by the musicologist uh, Imani Mosley. I think I've got her name right about um, she was live tweeting during the performance. And I had a quick look at that. Um, and what she was saying is that. There's so much potential in it as a work, but it was dramaturgically really unsound and unclear. Um, and whilst, you know, I am, I will put my hands up and say I'm not a uh, Kanye West, um, very knowledgeable about Kanye's music. Um, there definitely seems to be something around the narrative that was problematic. And maybe that's due to the time frame. Um, but as a composer and as a kind of lover of contemporary opera, I think as long as you have all those elements, you know, the voice, staging, great design, and you're telling a story in whatever way you want, I think, you know, contemporary opera can be what it wants to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say I would encourage people to go and go and take a look. It's only 50 minutes long. Get a free trial to this this thing and have a look. Uh, Chris, if, if there's anybody else um, uh, in the musical world that you would like to see write an opera, oh, who might uh, it be? Uh, good question. Um... Well, uh, for reasons I might come back to later, I think John Williams <laughs> okay. would be an interesting uh, one to see. Okay, I'm intrigued I'll, by I'll, reasons I'll come on I'll, to later, yeah, so we'll, save that for later. We'll, we'll leave that for now. 
Hello listeners, this is David speaking. Now, something just to add in, after we recorded the pod, we saw that Kanye West has announced yet another new opera. It's going to be on this Sunday, which is Sunday the 8th of December. It's called Mary. It's going to be at the Miami Marine Stadium, which is a stadium specifically built for powerboat racing, so it's on water. Um, This is very exciting news. We'll cover it all in the next episode of OperaCast, and maybe this is another Christmas opera to add to the canon. Uh, Back to the episode. Talking about people trying their hand at something new, Cecilia Bartoli has been announced as the new head of Monte Carlo Opera. She'll start in 2023. Uh, The the phenomenal singer has been dabbling in uh, kind of running ensembles and one over the past couple of years, but this is her first big job as head of an opera house. Um, So we look forward to seeing what Cecilia brings to Monte Carlo from 2023 onwards. Uh, a roundup of recent competition news. Uh, Keandra Howarth has won this year's Wagner Society competition. You may remember on last month's pod, we mentioned that she just won the Grange Festival competition as well. So a very successful couple of months for Keandra. Uh, Lucy Anderson has won this year's Bampton Singing Competition. And the Royal Philharmonic Society Opera and Music Theatre Award went to Lady Macbeth of Matensk from Birmingham Opera. Congratulations to all of those winners. Um, so RPS have uh, given Lady Macbeth of the Matensk the, uh, the the nod for their highlight of the year. Um, looking back at 2019 briefly, Michael, can I ask you what's uh, what stood out for you over the past uh, 12 months or so? Goodness, it was so hard um, to choose something because I've seen so many great productions this year. I think for me, though, it was seeing um, Akhenaten. Uh, earlier this year, English National Opera. I know it's just recently done at the Met, and Vox have done this fantastic video about the creation of an opera. Um, I saw Sasha Graha a couple of years ago when Eno did it, and you know, enjoyed it, but didn't love it. So I was kind of not knowing Akhenaten well, but knowing a lot of Philip Glass's work, um, I was just blown away by it, and especially by uh, countertenor Anthony Roth Constanzo. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, who just has this absolutely ethereal kind of genderless countertenor sound that just blew me away. Um, And of course, it's such a visual feast as well as the piece. And as I was saying earlier, you know, opera for me has to bring together all the different elements, you know, not just great singing and playing, but kind of great theatre, great spectacle. I think that production in particular just, yeah, was the top for me. Yeah, and I'd echo what you said about the um, the video from from Vox. I think we've we've already tweeted and Facebooked it. Um, it's yeah. a great ten minute behind the scenes, um, not just of behind the scenes on production, but it, it visits Anthony and his uh, vocal coach, um, and it's uh, it's just really interesting little snapshot into what goes into putting that together. And, and Anthony Rocascanzo, as you said, an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal counter tenor singer. Um, so do go uh, have a look at that video online. Um, Chris, I'm going to turn turn to you. What's uh, what's been your highlight of the past year? Well, this is what I was going to come back to John Williams about because I decided to go for a real left field curveball idea on this, which is uh, in September, I went to see Star Wars in concert, right? So they've been doing performances uh, where they, where they um, you know, they, they show the film and they have a, an orchestra playing the soundtrack along with the film, which, you know, it, um, there's lots of different companies uh, doing this with different things. Opera North did it with uh, Back to the Future, a year or so ago, I think. Um, And they've done a couple of other things. But yeah, I went to see Empire Strikes Back at Leeds Arena with the, they they were called the Novella Orchestra. Um, I'm not sure if they're a kind of orchestra that's come together specifically for this project or if they exist outside of it. But it was 
the reason I'm I'm choosing that as my opera highlight is because <laughs> it was really surprisingly operatic. You know, it, it felt just like watching an opera, sitting there with this. You know, the orchestra was seated on a platform, and the screen was behind them. It was just like there being a stage, and you were watching. You know, the actors on the screen. You know, do play, portraying the story, and then the orchestra were accompanying it from, as it were, from the pit. And it just felt so operatic, and it was it was such a different experience to watching the film. Um, it really changed the way you you kind of you viewed it, and the, the way you sort of interacted with it. Um, things like you know the, there was a round of applause after the twentieth uh, century fox um, mm. theme, which you know you wouldn't get that in the cinema, um, and things like that. And yeah, as I say, it just I know this is a bit of a cheat answer, but it just felt it felt really operatic. And uh, I would recommend anybody. They're doing uh, Return of the Jedi next year, so uh, I'd recommend anybody to uh, to go and see that. It's really interesting. Good. We, we love a left field pick <laughs> here on Operacast. That's fine with me. How interesting. Um, I've I've gone for uh, two productions. One towards the start of the year, uh, Pilgrim's Progress at the Royal Northern College of Music. Um, again, I, I tend to like anything that you don't see very often, um, but this is a very good production of the piece and fantastic singing, uh, particularly from Ed Robinson. Um, in the in the title role, and I think the Opera Theatre at the Royal Northern College of Music is a really lovely place to go and see opera if you haven't been there. Um, and also recently, one I mentioned on the podcast, Greek Passion at Opera North. Um, the piece has its problems, but they gave a, a absolutely astounding account of the work. Um, so those are, are, are two of my um, particular highlights from the past twelve months. Uh, do let us know what you've enjoyed uh, seeing on stage or on screen um, over the past year. Now, it's the story that unfortunately will not go away. We've had uh, kind of more developments in the Domingo saga, um, but also we've had um, accusations uh, going against uh, other uh, notable individuals in the opera world uh, over the past month. Most notably, Gareth Hancock, uh, the conductor, um, often works with, with Glyndebourne. Um, his contract for 2020 was not renewed following complaints of inappropriate behaviour made about him. Um, Glyndebourne said that during an investigation, clear evidence of inappropriate behaviour emerged and that Glyndebourne regards as our highest priority the safety and right of dignity of all of our staff. So Gareth's contract has not been renewed for the new season. Um, he's also been removed as head of opera at the Royal Academy of Music. Uh, now, following this accusation, um, that's now led to reports of 15 complaints being made against staff at the Royal Academy. A casting couch mentality appears to be emerging among certain members of staff at the Academy, um, with many quite shocking remarks being reported as being made to students from some of the tutors there. Um, it should be said that the Academy have not yet commented on this some quite astonishing things coming out there michael is mm. is this sort of environment something that that you've come across either personally or that you're, you're kind of aware of potentially being the case at, at conservatoires i think sadly yes i mean i'm really fortunate that i haven't experienced anything myself but especially for my female colleagues um i've heard horror stories left right and center um and that goes from kind of fellow composers being kind of commented on the way they dress uh, in terms of relationships to their work. And then also kind of you hear horror stories of kind of uh, people in chorus situations and uh, inappropriate touching and from colleagues or comments. Yes, sadly, it's, it's I think it's widespread. Um, but at the same time, I know there's been lots of talk around Gareth Hancock and what's happened, but good on Glyndebourne for investigating because I feel obviously with what's happened with the Academy and kind of suddenly all these um, allegations coming forward and complaints from students, it's obviously 
sadly rife happening everywhere and I hope the academy do go ahead and make an investigation because it sounds like there's a problem not just there but across music colleges. Mm. And I think that's always the, the worry in these sort of settings is that you focus on the, the the one case and people don't sort of start to look a bit more broadly what they may be doing. It's not a case of um, you know things are happening at my concertoire and they haven't been reported so let's just <laughs> let's keep it under wraps kind of being proactive about it. Yeah and I yeah. think it's it's right to say good on them for investigating and taking action because I think that's one of the main problems with the um, the whole you know saga with Placido Domingo is that there seems to have been a, a real um, hesitancy for, from anyone to actually take any action on it um, you know as you say we're still talking about it it, this should have been investigated and dealt with, you know, as soon as it, it came to light. And so I think it's good that in this instance that has happened and they've taken the right decision. They've, you know, found evidence of inappropriate behaviour, so they've removed him. Um, and, you know, I hope that other other organisations can respond in a similar way to anything similar that happens elsewhere. Mm. I, I mean, I, I remember a few, a few years ago um, there was a lot of talk about... the. The particularities of of teaching music, particularly more when it comes to sort of directing or kind of um, showing individuals by kind of uh, touching and and that, and that sort of thing. And I think you know there obviously are some people people debate whether that's the sort of thing that you need to be able to do to kind of teach people. Chris, in in general, do you think we're in a danger, whether it's physically or verbally, of kind of sanitizing the the creative environment in any way by focusing on the? I mean, there's obviously some really um, untoward things that have, that have gone wrong. But there is a danger, isn't there, that we kind of go almost the opposite way? Well, I don't know. I, you know, I've, you know, I've, had, I've had teachers, um, you know, touch me in lessons, not in, in, a, um, you know, in, an, in an appropriate way. Um, they've, you know, a singing teacher has said, you know, can I put my hand on your stomach here to demonstrate this or that? You know, and that's fine because they've asked permission and it's been completely you know, professional and, and normal. And, and I think it's it's perfectly easy to, to draw a line between appropriate behaviour and inappropriate behaviour. And so I, I, I think that's a bit of a kind of, um, you know, a bit of a sort of false alarm to say, oh, you know, we could go too far the other way and have not enough inappropriate behaviour. In, in, in yeah, That doesn't really make any sense to me. You know, I think, you, you know, <laughs> there is right and wrong. You, you know, everybody knows how they should behave and yeah, unfortunately some people uh, just don't. I agree and I think it's that thing, consent, there's that very simple um, video about cups of tea and mm. consent. I yeah. don't know if uh, either of you have seen that yeah. but yeah. you know we consent is something that is actually quite simple. Someone can withdraw consent at any point and that's also in a process when yes there are um, operas which have some very very emotional very very dramatic you know there are rape scenes in operas and it's up to a director how to depict that and it's very very sensitive but in terms of staging those moments and having to explore those very very difficult themes we sh you know people can very clearly directors and conductors although conducting and staging obviously have a less to do with it but that idea of consent in those contexts is so, 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 so vital. Um, but then, of course, it extends further than that, because I think with the Gareth Hancock situation, from what I understand, it was a text. Um, 
And what I find really fascinating is having worked with young people a lot, as in under the age of 18, our kind of child protection policies in the, the big houses are absolutely watertight and absolutely fantastic to protect people under the age of 18 and the staff that work with them. However, why aren't we applying this within power dynamics at conservatoires and opera houses? How come it suddenly stops kind of this phenomenal policy building that's been happening for many years for our children? And then suddenly it's not, these great policies aren't extending to working with young adults and working in opera houses where there's quite a challenging power dynamic sometimes and hierarchies. Yeah, it's a very good point. There's a sort of, um, it's, it's almost like there's an on-off switch. And, you know, when you turn 18, that's it, switched off. You, you don't need any protection from anything anymore. But as you say, it exactly, you know, you're exactly right. It's about power dynamics. And the reason that we kind of protect children and people under the age of 18 is because people can exert, you know, adults can have that, you know, there's a power dynamic there uh, mm. that can be taken advantage of. Um, and yeah, that, that still applies to people that are older 18 when they're interacting with people, you know, um, of, you know, with more authority than them. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, these sorts of protections need to be applied to more than just one category of people. Yeah. I mean, let's let's see what happens with the academy. I so say they they get to comment. Let's see what happens there, and indeed at, at other conservatoires as well. Um, we we can't escape uh, Domingo this month. Um, he's given his first kind of major interview on the issue, um, where he has apologised. Uh, the classic apology: if people were offended. Yeah. Um, he said he merely gave gallant gestures, but unfortunately, gallant gestures are viewed differently nowadays. Um, I think that's probably the response that we all expected, and we will we will continue to follow this case as it goes along. Um, also, again, on, sadly, on a, on a similar theme, over the last twenty four hours, um, uh, the investigation into Vittorio Grigolo at the Royal Opera House has been concluded. Um, you may remember a couple of months ago on the Royal Opera House's tour of Japan, um, he was accused of groping a fellow cast member at the curtain call of a uh, performance on their, their tour of Japan. Um, the Opera House have finished uh, their investigation. They found inappropriate and aggressive behaviour from him. Um, he's been suspended from future performances at the Royal Opera House and indeed future performances at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Um, as is the case uh, nowadays, I'm going to sound very old man about this, Vittorio took to Instagram um, with his response and I'm just going to read out a little bit of it uh, now if I can find it on my screen. Yes, he has said, I neglected to express how sorry I am that this episode clouded the effort, passion and love of art that every single one of my colleagues invested in this production. I'm aware that even though it was never my intention to offend anyone, the situation deteriorated unexpectedly due to a brawl between colleagues. I'm truly saddened that my behaviour towards everyone in the cast was perceived to be below Royal Opera House standards. I recognise that my personality can be very exuberant at times and I'm willing to make sure that what happened will not happen again in the future. So he's not actually apologised for it's what a, he did. It's another one of those non-apologies. Yeah. And again, we've we've come onto this before, but what, again, is really, really astounds me, kind of the comments being made on his Instagram post. The one at the very top is from Sonia Yoncheva. So again, one of the absolute international superstars. She says, more exuberant sincerity is needed to this world. Um, so glowing endorsement of Vittorio's uh, actions there from, from Sonia and we've spoken before about how many people have leapt to Plasto Domingo's defence um, but looking again in the 
the, the comments from general members of the public, so many comments along the lines of, how dare they do this? You're such a great artist. It's it's mm. not fair. Um, and again and again, people return to this. They're a great artist. Why are you picking on them? Sort of comments. Um, and personally, I don't uh, often give my um, personal opinions on these things, but I'm getting sick and tired of these arguments um, being made uh, to do with this sort of this sort of behaviour. Um, so a line's been drawn under the Vittorio Gregolo affair. Domingo rumbles on, and we will continue to follow it here on OperaCast. Now, uh, in more positive news, let's have a look forward to 2020, uh, shall we? Um, I've asked Chris and Michael to to pick out a highlight coming up over the next year to look forward to, and no doubt what we'll be discussing on the pod next year. I'm, I'm going to start this time with with Chris. What have you seen that's coming up next year that's really taken you fancy? Well, uh, friend of the podcast, uh, John Savornin, is uh, directing Pirates of Penzance for Opera Holland Park and uh, Charles Court Opera, it's a, a joint production. Um, and uh, having seen... And he's also playing the uh, the Pirate King in the production as well. And um, he directed Trial by Jury at Opera North, um, was it a year or a little over a year ago there? And having seen that production, I am definitely going to try and get to this one because uh, I think he he has a... His directing style really, really works for Gilbert and Sullivan. He really... Um, he sort of understood the the kind of comedic style and there was excellent physical comedy in Trial by Jury as well which I I think um, he had a um, movement director as well but you know I'm sure um, you know he had some input into the the physical movements as well so you know I'm very much looking forward to uh, hopefully going to see that one. And uh, John's company, Charles Scott Opera, their panto is currently on at the King's Head Theatre. It's been receiving glowing five-star reviews. Um, so if you're down in London, do try and get a ticket. Um, I think it's called Nativity the Panto from Charles Scott Opera. Um, excellent choice. Michael, what's uh, what's taking you fancy next year? Can I be cheeky and ask for two? Yes, because I've also picked two, so that's fine. <laughs> ah, fine, fine, fine. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, they're very, very different. So I'm really excited by Dennis and Katja that Music Theatre Wales are producing Philip Venables and Ted Huffman's new opera. Um, premiered uh, Opera Philadelphia earlier this year to absolutely glowing reviews. And if listeners know Phil and Ted's work, um, their 448 Psychosis, the Sarah Kane adaptation that the Royal Opera House did a few years ago, where Phil was um, composing residence with Guildhall, um, was just such a powerful work. Um, Again, this is kind of a recurring theme in my discussion, but embraced all different parts of kind of the uh, opera machine and all the disciplines within opera. It was just a visual musical feast. Um, but Dennis and Catcher is, uh, yeah, Music Theatre Wales are touring it, coming to the South Bank, but also coming to Mould in North Wales, where I will be catching it in early March. Um, but also, again, other side of the coin, Opera North are collaborating with Leeds Playhouse to do a little night music. Mm. Uh, I am a massive, massive Stephen Sondheim fan, and I very, very sadly missed um, the Into the Woods they did a couple of years ago, but I heard great things. Um, so I'm hopefully going for my birthday this year and I can't wait good and a good hint about an early birthday present for, for <laughs> Michael there um, I've got uh, yeah pick, picked out two choices both of which will be happening in the in the summer um, Glenbourne's Rake's Progress I know the production's what 40 years old but it's the classic David Hockney production a great cast as well Matthew Rose Louise Alder 
Um, that's surely going to be absolutely fantastic. Um, and I've also chosen, uh, hopefully you'll be pleased to hear, Michael, a, a new opera. Um, Grange Park Opera are doing The Life and Death of Alexander Litvinenko, uh, which we mentioned on the pod before. Um, but I think really interesting that they've, they're taking on uh, a very... Uh, uh, modern uh, story that's had a very high impact um so kind of looking at uh recent political events and, and dramatizing that i think that's uh that looks really really interesting um so uh hopefully i'll be able to get down to grange park to see that uh, but lots to look forward to in 2020 uh, do join us across the year um i've mentioned before we'll be going to two podcasts a year from january one our usual ramblings on the latest opera news and one episode a month, a special feature on something going on in the opera world. So do make sure to rate, review and subscribe to OperaCast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get us a Christmas present, dear listener, um, do tell your friends and family about OperaCast. Get them to subscribe and listen. Thank you very much. Now, last month, I had the great pleasure of talking to Sarah Hopwood, the managing director of Glyndebourne, about opera's terrible business model, welcoming in their new artistic director, and just what it takes to keep the festival at the top of the international game. Sarah Hopwood, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of OperaCast. Pleasure. Very good to meet you, David. So you're the managing director of Glyndebourne. Um, you obviously welcome a lot of artists to the festival every year in the summer. Do you think that artists know quite what it is that you do? Uh, I hope so. Um, I think we talk about it a lot, um, but the feedback we get from artists generally um, is that the experience actually inevitably, well, well, generally we hear it exceeds their expectations, um, but I think also there's, there's nothing like actually being here to experience it. Um, and obviously the big differentiator, it's we have a very extended rehearsal period, six to seven weeks, um, and then quite a long run of performances. So it's a very, very big time commitment for our artists. And when I say artists, I mean, you know, everyone from the singers, music staff, um, stage management, everybody involved. Um, so it's a big time commitment. And I think initially that can be a scary prospect. But I think when people actually get down here, and genuinely sort of join the family. Um, I, I think, well, it's obviously a beautiful part of the world to be in um, and incredibly high standard of music preparation. And, and generally the feedback I get is that people have had a fantastic experience and want to come back. Do you kind of think artists generally are sort of quite aware of what kind of that side of running the an organisation involves? Or do you think they're very much kind of closed in the rehearsal <laughs> rehearsal room, you know, purely kind of on the artistic side. Do you think they're aware of kind of the wider stuff that goes on into making something like this happen? Um, no, I don't think they are. And to a certain extent, I mean, I have great sympathy for that because I would say, in a way, why should they be worried about that? Um, they should be worrying about coming and giving their best performance. And I don't want anyone to have to worry about the business side. I want to feel that Glyndebourne is in an incredibly secure position um, and that we're well set to, to deliver into the future. We're planning, you know, four years ahead. Um, and it's a terrible business model running an opera house because you're making cost commitments. You're contracting artists four years ahead, but then your income doesn't start to roll in till within sort of 12 months before performances start. And that's if you're lucky. So um, I don't want the artists to have to worry about that side of things. But having said that, 
um, one person can't make that happen on on one's own. Um, and, you know, at Glyndebourne, I talk very freely and very regularly with the company about the business and financial challenges in a very changing world. And the thing that I love is that I, I feel at Glyndebourne that everybody here uh, feels it's a shared responsibility um, and, you know, box office is our biggest income generator, as you're well aware, the festival receives no public subsidy. And we're, we're proud of that. It gives us an independence, independence and flexibility. Um, it's the festival that supports our year round activity with the tour, um, our year round education program, all those things that are incredibly important to what we do. Um, but to be financially independent requires everybody's input everybody needs to be very aware of what they're spending and why um and as i say the sort of collaborative team effort to that is is fantastic what role do you see your role as playing in terms of the artistic decisions of the organization you know do you do you kind of feel as though you need to have a fairly strong hand as to what the company does artistically to make sure that the business side marries with what the artistic mm. side would like to do i think it's incredibly important for an arts organization to be artistically led i mean there has to be a strong artistic vision at the heart of it that's imperative um opera planning by numbers is never going to be the most exciting and if it's not most exciting i don't think it's going to be sustainable long term so so that's absolutely the heart of what i believe and i see my job as being to ensure that we can deliver on the artistic vision um and the artistic vision, I said earlier, is so much more than the festival alone. Um, so Stephen Langridge joined us as artistic director earlier this year, and he's planning repertoire now for 2022 and 23 for the festival and the tour. We got slightly behind where we'd like to be in an ideal world because, because we didn't have an artistic director. Um, but he's busy planning that. And I would say it's an incredibly close collaboration between Stephen, myself, Gus Christie, and then our technical director, Eric, and director of artistic administration, Stephen Naylor. Um, and it's Stephen Langridge has the vision, but then the rest of us have the Glyndebourne experience um, and have tried many things over the years. It's really important for me not to be the one saying, oh no, we've tried that and it doesn't work. It's really, really important that that, that we're all open-minded and that we say, right, how are we going to realise that? Um, you know, we do have a couple of financial disciplines that have stood us in very, very good stead over the last 20 years. And I would be very loath to break those financial disciplines because people understand them and they work. Um, so it does mean you have to go around the houses a few times to, to, to meet those targets. But as I say, starting with the dream is is the right way to start. I mean, do you see any kind of trends emerging when you when you you're working at Glyndebourne and talking to other companies as to whether opera companies are starting to kind of think in different ways as to how to run organisations as a business? And I suppose kind of taking some of your learnings from your background yes. in more of the the corporate sector. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, no, I think I don't. Uh, we're all facing this, the same challenges. Um, I think opera audiences are inevitably getting more price sensitive. I don't think that's surprising. And in a way, I see that as a good thing. I think as, as there is more opera in this country, people are able to be more selective. And I think that's actually very 
positive. And I think we all have to work hard at that. Um, and fundraising for us is obviously absolutely essential to the business model. We're facing more competition. Um, Arts Council funding has been at standstill, well, at least for us, for the tour for 11 years. Um, and I and I think, you know, our, our colleagues in other companies have faced the same challenge. Um, so we're all we're all facing that. Problem. I don't think I, I haven't had a sense recently that people are saying, right, we have to do something fundamentally different. Um, you know, when I first got here 20 years ago, I looked 22 years ago, um, I Channel 4 and the BBC were coming in and filming. And this is just a small example. And I had come from a, a very commercial background and I felt in a way that felt in, instinctively wrong to be giving away our intellectual property. Um, so I think we were probably the first opera company to invest in in our own destiny in that respect. And we, we spent a lot of time and effort working with artists and orchestras um, and, and other artists involved in clearing the rights to, to invest in, in creating content that we then own. Now, of course, 20 years ago, we were saying um, it's important because it's going to be the next big income stream. What's actually happened is we're covering our costs. It's not the next big income stream, but it's been absolutely imperative in reaching broader audiences. Um, and and actually more than just getting Glyndebourne's name out there, but getting opera out to to an audience who might not be able to come to the opera house for all sorts of different reasons. Um, and so that's a sorry, possibly a long winded explanation. But I think things aren't changing rapidly and radically, but things over time, when you look back and see how the business model has changed, how we're using content. And what we think of as as our opera output, whereas it was more focused on the live opera on the stage, it, it is so much more than that now. And it's about how we use our content, audio, audio, visual designs, photography, images. It, it's the whole it's the whole lot that's important. So I suppose a big part of that is about building and cementing that kind of Glyndebourne brand. Yeah. I mean, how do you think about positioning the company? Do you kind of think about it in terms of the other festivals international festivals or is Glyndebourne kind of more part of kind of a, a broader sort of high-end sort of heritage brand and how do you kind of position Glyndebourne when you think about it and it's who it's competing against sure sure um we would position ourselves as an international opera house um we we get clumped with different organizations at different times of the year um we are the third largest opera company in the uk um but we're the largest by a long way of privately funded um and i say privately funded you know we're very grateful to the arts council for the support we get for the tour but it is a very very small part less than five percent of our total income um so um in terms of you know, let's take Country House and tackle that head on the, the sort of summer festivals. Um, in the summer, we do get compared to other Country House opera festivals. Um, I think that has been a very good thing for the art form in terms of encouraging new audiences. And the challenge then for us is to ensure that, you know, not everybody that goes to those and, and first timers, they may not be opera experts. And it really that doesn't matter either way. But you know, they're looking for the overall best experience. And we have to say, not only must the opera that we put on our stage be to the highest international standards, so to whoever we're being compared with, but the overall experience from initial engagement, booking tickets, arriving on site, 
the whole experience must be absolutely the best. I think people know us as being a summer festival, but we are so much more than that. We are a year-round operation employing over 300 uh, staff a week on, a, on an average basis, um, up to 600 in the summer, about 170 at this time of the year. The tour is just about to go out on the road at the end of this month um, till Christmas. We've got various charity concerts coming up. Uh, we've got our second um, International Opera Cup singing competition, the finals. So um, auditions will be taking place around the world in December, January, with the finals at Glyndebourne in March. We have a very extensive year-round education programme. So it really is a year-round business. Glyndebourne, I suppose, used to be quite uniquely positioned as being the summer festival, and now we're awash with uh, yes. kind of country yeah. house festivals and whatnot. I mean, you, you mentioned before about thinking about the audience experience at Glyndebourne. I mean, how is it that you try and keep Glyndebourne at the top of that summer tree when there are so many sort of, you know, uh, very popular and very high quality festivals now here in the UK? Yeah, I think you've just said it, high quality. And I think the actual, the artistic quality absolutely has to be at the heart of it. Um, and I said earlier, you know, we have a very long rehearsal period um, with the highest quality musical preparation. Um, that's absolutely imperative. Um, we must not take shortcuts on that. And when we're looking at affordability, and financial viability, that, that is the area where we must, we must not compromise um, because that is, I think, the differentiating factor for us. Um, the other summer country house opera, they're shorter festivals, shorter seasons. Ours is, you know, we're open from mid-May to the end of August. That is a long festival. But it is the opportunity for people to come and see the highest quality opera. And we do hear this from audiences that they may be introduced to opera uh, through through one of the other offerings and then they aspire to come to to Glyndebourne. um and we have a reasonable size overseas audience who again Glyndebourne is what they aspire to come to so we have to make sure that we match their expectations i mean what, what role do you see Glyndebourne as playing in that sort of wider uk opera kind of ecology and what do you kind of see your role as being in terms of developing a new generation of audiences given that you are as you said kind of privately funded you don't have that sure. sort of arts council remit I, I suppose with the festival to have to do this sort of work so sure. so how do you see Glyndebourne fitting in and, and what's your role in terms of those those new audiences I think it's absolutely critical for us that we are um, engaging the broadest possible audiences it's one of our four core objectives um, and the fact that we sort of led the charge on on filming and invest investing in our own destiny in that area means that we do have a lot of content that we can use in all sorts of different ways to reach broad audiences. Um, we've had a partnership with The Telegraph for the last six years where we stream for free through um, telegraph.co.uk and glyndebourne.com and that's obviously a very important way of giving people an introduction to the highest quality opera um, without the potential inconvenience of getting to an opera house or the cost of coming to the Glyndebourne Festival. Um, and, you know, we can't ignore that a day at Glyndebourne in the festival is an expensive day out. The tickets are expensive. It's a day out of your life. You have to, if you go to work, you have to take a day off work. Um, but actually, that, that is what enables us to do everything else to ensure that we can take opera to that broad audience. How, how do you kind of tread that line between keeping Glyndebourne as that kind of 
luxury high-end kind of quality brand that it kind of needs to be and that line between as you say kind of bringing through those those new audiences or do yeah. you not kind of see those being a, a line to kind of keep across no i think it's really important and um, we launched our under 30 scheme about uh, 11 years ago um which is subsidized by generous donors where we made a commitment um that we would release a minimum of a thousand festival top price tickets a year we didn't want to be sticking our under 30s up in the gods we said they will be in the best seats in the house for 30 quid we've actually released over 2000 tickets a year every year since then it's free to sign up for for under 30s and it's created a real fantastic hype on the day so we announce in advance what days we're going to release tickets um, and this year, the tickets went, 2,000 tickets went in less than 50 minutes. But actually, very excitingly, um, what we've just announced, uh, well, we, Gus Christie announced it on the last day of the festival, but um, we invited applications last Friday for the follow-up because where we were missing a trick, you know, our under-30s behave like members. They love coming here. They love the dressing up. They love the taking the day off work. And this is feedback we get we do a lot of focus groups with them um and then they get to the ripe old age of 30 and there's nowhere for them to go um they can't afford the next layer of membership so we launched fortissimo which is for our under 40s um and one can be any age up to 40 um and through again work with focus groups um we established they would be willing to pay an annual subscription so it's an 80 pounds a year annual subscription um, which then accrues towards the cost of associate membership so that you would build up and you would you would become over time an associate member. And there are various benefits, including priority booking, um, discounted tickets and strategic use of late availability. So where we have tickets returned within the last 48 hours, that obviously creates quite a challenge for us because of location. Um, but if we've got a connected group who see, you know, who are willing to make themselves available at short notice for um, well-priced tickets. And, you know, this isn't we have to be very, very mindful of our membership. It's our members buy 80 percent of our tickets and they are absolutely our lifeblood. They are the people who give us donations and sponsorship and buy our tickets and our greatest, greatest supporters. So it's really important that we're not. Um, in any way compromising what they do for us. We always have to be careful. You know, if we have late availability, we're not just going to go out to the public and say cheap tickets, discounted tickets, because then we're completely undermining our membership. Mm. But strategic use like this for the next generation of opera goers is really important and, and, and really valuable. And I think our members really understand that. Now, I, I really like this phrase you use, a sort of investing in your own destiny um you, you mentioned about the the intellectual property the cinema screenings and whatnot um but you also have the the wind turbine at glyndebourne yes have the new production hub which i think is is Briam excellent i think that's Just tell us a little bit about the idea of kind of investing in the in the future not only i suppose sure. you know the um energy sustainability but just the sustainability of the organization generally sure. the things that you're doing Sure. So, I mean, the, the Opera House, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the, the new, as people still refer to it, the new Opera House this summer. Um, and 25 years in the life of an Opera House is not a long time. And the Opera House still is more than fit for purpose. It's, it's iconic. We're very, very proud of it. Um, but inevitably, 
uh, all the kit, well, a, a lot of the surrounding kit in the kit in the broadest sense of the of the word is um, is also 25 years old and is long past its sell by. So if we take the production hub first, um, we had our prop makers, costume, carpenters, wigs working in really in conditions that I would say were not fit for purpose. They were um, real ramshackle range of buildings built in the 50s and 60s. Um, and increasingly with the demands from production teams, it was becoming very hard to fulfill wishes. So we were having to outsource, we were having to do work off site, which really goes against the grain. Um, so, we, and we have been building up over the past 15 years, absolutely for, we've been building our reserves so that we are in a position to invest with confidence. So about four years ago, we recognized we absolutely needed a fit for purpose uh, building to house our making departments. The, these departments, the skill sets we have are absolutely second to none. We employ and train the best people in the industry. And, you know, we again, one of our core objectives to create a, an inspirational and stimulating environment for all. And, and that's not just audiences, that's our staff as well. So we went ahead, um, it cost us six and a half million pounds, uh, very interesting and exciting um, architectural design. Um, one of the briefs, one of the elements of the brief was we wanted it to be a building that we could take audiences into so we can showcase the work without interrupting the workflow. So there's a lot of glass so that people and it's very open plan so people can really see what's going on. Um, the building was delivered within a year of starting work and we launched in. We didn't have to go out and say we can't do this work until we've raised the money. We said we, we can underwrite uh, the funding for this building with our reserves. So we were able to fundraise against that, which is always um, very, very, well, it's appealing for donors as well, because it shows a, a sort of financial responsibility. And I think donors like to invest where they have a confidence that their money will be well used for the long term. So we've just launched, so that was successfully delivered earlier this year. And I think the teams, the creative teams, making teams are very happy with that. Um, it also opens up the possibility over the longer term of using that space for training up uh, some, some of the areas where it's very hard to recruit. Um, so we've just launched earlier this year a campaign. We've got to refit our backstage. We've still got all the old fashioned kit that was installed 25 years ago, which is all entirely manual. So we're automating the entire backstage over the next five years. We're doing it deliberately over a five-year period um, so that we don't have to interrupt the flow of the festival or the tour. We will be doing it at the times of the year where the stage is not in use. Um, so this has all been very carefully worked out. That's also important in terms of training up our staff to work in a new way um, uh, and also not take the risk of things not being ready on time. So we're currently out raising another six and a half million pounds um, to, to fit the backstage. Um, it's also important that we continue to invest in the in the audience experience. Um, you know, a big part of the Glyndebourne experience for many. Half our audience picnic every night, um, and with the vagaries of the of the British summer, you can't rely on sunshine every day. So it's important that rain or shine, people have a very positive experience. Um, so those are areas that we're also looking at. Turning 
our attentions to 2020. Coming up first, I suppose, is the, the second iteration of the Glyndebourne Cup, um, yeah. your new singing competition. Um, now, there are, there are thousands and thousands of singing competitions. What, why do we ha- now have the Glyndebourne Cup? Um, so we trialled this. It was launched in 2018. Um, and the, w- one of the sort of core objectives was to reach young singers who may experience barriers uh, to pursuing their career um, and barriers to participating in these sort of competitions around the world. Um, And we said it's really important that there should not be any sort of barriers, gender, financial, location, any, any, um, any barriers whatsoever, and that we would work closely with interested participants to eliminate those barriers. Um, and actually, to that end, we are uh, auditioning in a much broader range of international cities um, for the 2020 Cup. So, so we did manage to reach a very interesting group of young singers. Um, and we, we went into it very much on the basis, let's, let's see what happens. Uh, Sky Arts partnered with us. Um, it was broadcast to a really vast um, audience through Sky, which in terms of raising the profile of these young people was was very, very important. Um, and in the end, we so we obviously reviewed and assessed at the end of the process and agreed that it was something we should be doing every two years because we feel in partnership with Sky and, and with others, we have the wherewithal to actually make, again, that investment and commitment to reach these uh, young people. And the other, I think the other big difference, part of our our panel looked quite different to the panels on a number of other singing competitions. We had a number of international opera houses represented on the panel, and we made a commitment um, that the winner would be offered a main role within one of these international opera houses within five years. Um, That target was completely smashed in year one. Um, the winner, Samantha Hankey, has appeared at the Met already. Jacqueline Stucker, uh, who was the second prize winner, is playing the role of Armida in our Ronaldo on tour this year. And then Elbenita Vitsazi, who um, was won the third prize and the audience prize, is playing Adina in Elysia next festival. So uh, that that for us was a very, very important part of it. It wasn't just about a one-hit wonder. It was about saying, how are we going to help these young people's careers? Um, and we felt that that objective was very well achieved. What are you most looking forward to of, uh, of the 2020 season? Um, it, it's really, this is going to be real. I, it's really, really hard for me. And I get asked this <laughs> every year because... Part of me, I mean, I've been privileged enough to have um, seen the, the Rake's Progress last time we did it at Glyndebourne, and I absolutely love it. I love the music um, and I love the production. So, of course, I'm excited about that coming back. Um, but for me, you know, I've never seen Carmelites before and I've been listening a lot to the music and I think the music is absolutely divine. So I'm very, very excited um, about that. Um it's it's very Alcina. We've got a wonderful um, Italian creative team, director and designer, who presented the model earlier this summer, and then again for our donors um, at an event in London last week. And their concept is is just so beautifully. 
presented and 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 they are so eloquent in the way they describe it um it's going to be an absolute um sort of fantasy ride uh very very fine very beautiful um very colorful and of course having having had the privilege of that insight i'm very very excited about that being actually conceived and and put on the stage and actually watching our creative teams our costume makers and prop makers um they've they've got the designs they're very excited about it and actually the designer is also talking to our head of retail about merchandise so i, I it's a long-winded answer i i can't say there's one piece that i'm more excited about than others i'm excited about the whole season and i'm excited about different pieces for different reasons and the final question that we ask everybody on opera cast if there's one opera that you know glyndebourne hasn't done for a long time or isn't coming up that you would like to see what would what would you uh, love to see at glyndebourne in the in the future oh gosh i wish now i wish i'd thought about that in advance <laughs> you can play stephen language for, for oh, a minute you know right you know that would be very very dangerous um, because my i'll be on it you know my I, i'm an accountant not a <laughs> and my, my knowledge of opera I, it, it's obviously a lot broader than it was 22 years ago but i would not pretend to be an expert um okay i'm going to go rodelinda um which and actually this is really hard because as i start to think back to those really early years of when i was here where it was such a learning curve for me um we had andrea scholl sang in rodelinda and i think it was his first i think it was his opera debut and it was in about 1998 and i just thought the production was absolutely spectacular and i loved the music and i still love the music and i would love to see that again at glamble Sarah Hopper, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Good luck with the rest of the tour and, of course, with everything going on in 2020. Thank you, David. So thank you very much to Sarah and Glyndebourne uh, for their time last month. Now, two bits of sad news to finish off our, our news recap. Um, we've had the, the, the deaths over the past month of the conductor Maris Janssens, best known for his work on the concert platform, but a very fine opera conductor as well. Um, also, the very, very sad news um, that the opera theatre director, kind of all-round polymath Jonathan Miller has died at the age of 85. Best known for his blockbuster productions at English National Opera, uh, including Rigoletto and the Mikado, which again is in um, Eno's repertoire for this season. Um, he directed many times at the Coliseum, indeed at the Royal Opera and the Met as well. And I think what was so fantastic about Jonathan was that, yes, of course, he had a very keen eye for the intellectual, um, but also a really keen eye for what would be crowd-pleasing. And his Mikado Eno is the absolute kind of epitome of that. Um, so very sad loss to the worlds of, of opera uh, and theatre uh, with Maris and Jonathan. Now, you can't hide it, dear listener, whether you're a Grinch or a, a modern-day Santa Claus, Christmas season is upon us. If you are still looking for the perfect gift for the opera lover in your life, we've got a few suggestions for you. Uh, now, if you head over to our Instagram page, we had a rummage through the Royal Opera House Christmas shop recently, and um, so we've got some ideas on there. But I've also asked Chris and Michael to do a bit of digging around and see if they can find anything that looks particularly interesting um, for opera fans this Christmas. I've picked out two that I think are particularly lovely presents this time of year, and if anyone's listening and wants to buy me uh, something, here are some suggestions. Uh, the Metropolitan Opera have a great range of things online. They have a particularly lovely cheese board um, inscribed with the Metropolitan Opera logo. Comes with a knife as well, a very nice little gift set there. Um, also, if you head over to christmascompany.co.uk, they have a range of opera 
uh, Christmas tree decorations, including a Brunhilde, and they have a Giuseppe Verdi, a Papageno, and a Papagena. They have a Madame Butterfly, and all sorts of uh, cuddly uh, Christmas figures to hang on your Christmas tree this year. That's ChristmasCompany.co.uk. Chris, what have you? What have you found? Well, I received for my birthday this year uh, from a friend of mine. Uh, vouchers from the Royal Opera House, which is not something I, I didn't, I mean, I guess it's sort of might be fairly obvious if you think about it, but I hadn't realised that uh, you could buy gift vouchers uh, from the Royal Opera House. So I'm quite pleased with that and looking forward to spending those uh, going to see a production in the new year. Uh, so I definitely recommend those. Um, I also found some rather natty uh, socks on the website Chatty Feet. If you, if you search for Diva Socks, you'll find a lovely pair of socks with, you know, somebody opening their mouth wide in a kind of uh, a kind of you know dramatic singing pose lovely pair of socks there might be a, a good gift for someone good we'll make sure to get that on instagram one um, can never have too many socks as as dumbledore <laughs> taught us uh, and michael we know what you want for your birthday but what is it that you've picked out for christmas yeah well it's interesting chris talks about his vouchers for the royal opera house because my parents got me vouchers for ENO last christmas oh, there so we go yeah obviously a theme um so as already discussed, I'm a bit of a Grinch, a bit of a Scrooge. Um, I'm not a big present person, I guess. Uh, me and my partner, because my partner lives on a boat, very small space. We don't like things, so we do experiences for each other. Um, and the big thing for me is I do loads of work with loads of different learning and participation departments with different opera houses across the UK. Um, and for me, a donation to one of those schemes or one of the programs that these, these education departments run is always a really, really lovely gift or donating to a smaller opera company because we know the big six are well funded by the Arts Council, but it's kind of tough times um, in terms of arts funding and fundraising, as I'm sure you both know. So kind of a donation on behalf of someone to a small opera company can make a massive difference. So I think that's my kind of goodwill Christmas gift. Very, very well said. Uh, we will uh, put some of these things on uh, on Instagram, so 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 take a look. And uh, I do echo Michael's uh, suggestion there. Uh, if you've got people in your lives that have got lots of things already, um, you know, why not donate on on someone's behalf to a cause that they love? A great suggestion. Now, with the Christmas season coming up, um, I dare say a number of people will be sat down looking for uh, what to watch in front of the telly or what to listen to on the wireless. We've got a few suggestions for you. Um, Last month, you can still catch on iPlayer, um, a fascinating documentary on BBC4, which I think was a repeat uh, about the creation of the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Uh, that is well worth a watch. Uh, Bruno Tognoli, who I recently discovered, is 64 years old. He Doesn't he look good for 64? Um, he's got a, a four-part series on BBC2, um, exploring opera. There's a couple of episodes coming up in December. Mamas and Papas looking at mothers and fathers, funnily enough, in opera, and the great opera choruses. That's the 22nd of December. Uh, Death in Venice uh, from the Royal Opera House will be broadcast on Radio 3 on the 28th. Uh, we chatted to Gerald Finlay on the podcast last month, um, really whetting our appetite for that production, so you can listen to that on Radio 3. Uh, a real rarity, Arthur Sullivan's opera Haddon Hall is coming to Radio 3 on the 19th of December. Um, and the uh, opera for you to watch on terrestrial television this Christmas is Glyndebourne's Magic Flute. Their new production uh, from this summer will be on BBC4 over the Christmas period. Now, every month I have to have an obligatory mention of Opera Vision, um, but rather than picking out something that's coming up on the website this month, um, they've just launched the figures for the first two years 
um, of the streaming service. Um, they've had over 2 million full-length performance views of the operas, um, 5.8 million views in total of content on the website. Over 106 operas have been on there, um, 600 plus behind the scenes videos and content from 40 different countries. Um, so every month I say how great Opera Vision is. There's some stats to back it up. If you're looking for something to watch this uh, this Christmas season, they've got tons of fantastic works from all over the world on the website, operavision.eu. Thank you, Opera Vision. Thank you, European Union. And that's all I will say on that. <laughs> Now, talking about Opera at Christmas, a tweet that really caught my attention this month from Mr. Phil Norman was a great article from uh, a newspaper from 1972. Um, ITV's Christmas Day schedule was deemed to be too frivolous and too entertaining by the Independent Broadcast Authority. Um, they thought there were too many entertainment, light entertainment and variety shows. and Instead, they should put something on more worthy. For example, uh, Verdi's Macbeth uh, would be much more appropriate Christmas Day entertainment i went back through this there's another great website again if you mean you're really geeky about christmas and particularly tv at christmas um called ukchristmastv.weebly.com and um, we can go back through all the old christmas tv schedules and i found bbc 1962 just the one channel you could see three operas in two days over christmas eve and christmas <laughs> day the mikado uh, uh the christmas carol commissioned for the bbc by edwin coleman and a labo m as well those were the days, weren't they, Chris? Well, you say that, but the the article uh, on that uh, that was posted on Twitter wasn't particularly flattering about the suggestion uh, that uh, from the uh, broadcast authority that they they show Macbeth instead of the uh, planned programming. So I'm not sure how well received that idea was. And and I did happen to look down. He'd uh, he tweeted what the schedule ended up being, and he and he said. They didn't go for Macbeth in the end, so it wasn't broadcast. And as you say, I, I'm not sure how much people want to sit down and watch that particular <laughs> opera on Christmas Day, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, was, there was a bit of an argument here, isn't there, that, Michael, that, um, you know, as much as we'd like to see opera on terrestrial television to, to get it among a wider audience, because there is so much choice nowadays. As I said, you can pop on Opera Vision if you want to watch something. You don't have to rely on what happens to be on BBC One, it being the the only channel is 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 choice actually maybe kind of limiting opera's ability to get out to a general public because as i say we don't need it on television anymore we can we can get our content wherever we want it yeah i i guess but at the same time you know classic fm talk about how they're i think this is right that they're they're seeing a big increase in listeners who are younger and we always fear in the opera world that we're losing our young audiences. Um, but actually, the fact that we allow audience choice, there's so much out there, I think means that, you know, people can choose what they want to see. And the Kanye West, one of the things I didn't mention earlier was a lot of musicologists and a lot of people in the opera world on Twitter were commenting on how big the audience was and actually how viral it went on Twitter, um, which just makes you kind of think about, you know, okay, maybe the piece itself needs work, but actually opera can come at all different angles from all different platforms, all different artists. And the work that Kanye is doing, fine, might not have been a great piece necessarily, but is getting different people engaged on different platforms. So, I mean, I would love to see, you know, wall-to-wall -wall opera during Christmas. <laughs> that would give me something to do. But, you know, choice is good. 
of course, young people aren't watching terrestrial television. So, you know, maybe it doesn't matter that opera's not on the, on the terrestrial yeah. channels. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I say, if, you, if you're intrigued as to what Yolden Times was, was like, ukchristmastv.weebly.com, a fascinating insight. Um, I also found, I've mentioned this a long time ago on the pod, but one of my first introductions to opera was a Christmas Day broadcast of Cenerentola. And I went back and was able to find that um, back in 2012, BBC Two on Christmas Day um, this year. I'm not sure what uh, what day Magic Flute's on, but it will be on BBC Four this Christmas. And so before we head into the final opera quiz of the year, it's time for our hidden gem. And there's only one sub-genre of opera I could have chosen uh, for this month, which is Christmas operas. And I've chosen Hans Fitzner's The Christmas Elf. Uh, it premiered in 1906 as incidental music to a play by Ilse von Stack before it was revised as a full opera in 1917. Um, it's very uh, kind of romantic score, kind of similar to, to Hansel and Gretel or, or something like that. Um, a very charming uh, story set in a German village. Uh, it's got everything you could want at this time of year. Oodles of snow, enchanted forests, singing fir trees, uh, an elf, uh, Father Christmas, everything you could want at this time of year. A fantastic opera for families as well as the opera connoisseur. Um, it's hardly ever performed, uh, but you will have your chance this year. It's in Leeds on the 21st of December at Northern Ballet, a new production by Northern Opera Group with a new English translation as well. Um, so if you're able to, do come along. It's at Northern Ballet, 21st of December, tickets from theatreleeds.com. Um, a rare chance to see this. It's really beautiful. Christmas opera live. Uh, so here is a little bit from Hans Fitzner's The Christmas Elf. And so to finish with a Christmas-themed opera quiz, very Christmas-heavy this month, for which I make no apologies. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play uh, music from five operas. Um, they may be uh, Christmas in theme, they may feature Christmas as part of the story, um, but what I want Michael and Chris to do is to let me know uh, either what the opera is or who the composer is. Some uh, no, that's a complete lie. One of them's quite easy. The rest of them are a bit more tricky. <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to be uh, a particularly bad one for people listening, yelling at, uh, <laughs> at us saying, it's this! How can you not know? <laughs> we shall see. Um, so, Michael and Chris, we're going to play it. If you know what it is, um, shout stop or something similar and we'll pause it so you can guess either the opera or the composer um, and we will see how well you do. Um, so, if I can... Very kindly ask our wonderful technician Elliot to hit play on the first one, the name of the opera or the name of the composer. Anything from Michael or Chris? Any guesses? Absolute blank. Uh, 
I mean, I can come up with the excuse that because I'm hearing it over um, over a phone line, Skype, that I'm not hearing it as clearly. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry. No guesses. I don't want to make a guess and then it'd be stupidly wrong. <laughs> Is it originally... Was it, it was English, originally in English? Correct. Okay. <laughs> Is it Britain? <laughs> It's not. It's not yeah, Britain. That's what I didn't want to say because I thought that would be a stupid wrong answer. If there's uh... no guesses, I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> that's "Have You Seen a Child" from Giancarlo Minotti's "Amal and the Night Visitors." It's the Christmas, the Christmassy of Christmassy operas. I am distraught. Um, this next one, I, I'm going to say this is a lot easier. If we can go for number two, please, Maestro. Oh yeah, that's Labarum. It's Labarum. Well done, Chris. Thank you very much. That was a very easy one. Uh, one to Chris. Uh, this next one is a bit trickier. The composer is probably a bit easier than the opera itself. Cue song three, please. So Christmas comes but once a year. Let's eat some turkey. Do we have some guesses from Chris or Michael as to who that might be or the opera? <laughs> right, stab in the dark, embarrass myself. Is the composer sounds quite Tchaikovsky-esque, if it's an English translation? Uh, I will let you off there, Michael. You can have another guess. That is originally in English. Those are the original lyrics. Oh, uh, okay. I, yeah, Goodness. I, I was, yeah, I was get, um, veering towards something... Uh, uh, check or something. You're in about the right time period. I'll give you that. Sullivan. It's not Sullivan. No. Anything Just trying to English composers. <laughs> or is it American composer? Uh, is it Britain? It is Britain. Congratulations. That's Paul Bunyan. Act oh, two, scene oh, two, the Christmas <laughs> this party. I do apologise wow, okay. to everyone listening. <laughs> um, please, please, people listening, employ me in future. I do understand opera, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so that's that's two for Chris. Um, we've got two more. <laughs> oh, it's a Pyrrhic victory. Two more, two more coming up. Let's see if we get any here. So here's number four, please. romantic think french i'll give you a clue this composer wrote another opera which um would be very apt for this time of year i was gonna go for massonet and chris takes the victory it's massonet it's Werther. uh that's the act for noel 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 
chorus um, from Vertes Massonet. Uh, and of course, I was alluding to Massonet's Cendrillon. One of as my an favourites. Op- one, one of favorites. your favourites that might be appropriate for this time of year. Um, congratulations. Apart from Lab OM, that was a very tough quiz. Um, the fi- let's just play a little bit of what the final one was going to be. Originally in Russian, Michael, would you like to guess what you guessed earlier? Tchaikovsky? That's Tchaikovsky. (laughs) That's Chernovichki, otherwise known as The Little Slippers uh, by Tchaikovsky. That was our final one. We invite you into our house um, from the Act 4 finale. Um, Congratulations. Thank you for being such good sports. Um, And we hope that, dear listener, um, we've kind of expanded your repertoire a little bit of Christmassy operas, um, including a bit of Paul Bunyan, and I will completely hold my hands up until looking into this. I didn't realise that uh, a good part of that was set at Christmas time. Um, So congratulations, Chris. Well done. And thank you, Michael, for being such a good sport. This is our final podcast of the year, so it's up to me to say a huge thank you, first of all, to Chapel FM for hosting us every month. We couldn't have done it without without you guys. Um, thank you to all of our fantastic panellists and guests we've had over the past 12 months. Um, and most of all, thank you, listeners, for being with us this year. Um, do make sure to dis- subscribe, tell your friends, ready for next year, and when we'll be going up to two podcasts a month, lots more content coming your way. A very merry opera Christmas to you all. A very much thank you to Chris for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you to Michael for uh, Skyping in. Thank you. And a very merry Christmas to you all. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you both very much indeed. It was a very good episode. I enjoyed that, that greatly. It was the worst. <laughs> it was very it was very difficult. It's the first time we've done oh. a playing songs one. Yeah. Which I think is worse than me just sort of saying things. Well, it is when you choose obscure stuff. Like <laughs> Verte, La Boheme. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't think Amal first... I don't think Amal's that obscure. Oh dear. Well, I don't know.